podcast of sermons by Pastor Charles St. Ange, LCMS Missionary in Montreal, Quebec, and the Caribbean. Grace, mercy, and peace be with you from God our Father and our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. I think by now everyone has heard the slogan for Capital One credit cards and debit cards and bank accounts. What's in your wallet? Of course, if you look inside your wallet in your typical mail, I am, you've got more than just credit cards and debit cards in your wallet. You've probably got your health insurance card if you're up here in Canada, your driver's license or your Opus card if you're taking transit around Montreal. You've got some business cards, your own, and then maybe the last few that you've received when you had a meeting. Of course, it's COVID. Not many of us sharing business cards right now. Membership cards for various organizations, Costco, et cetera, et cetera. What's in your wallet is more than just money, more than just cash, credit cards, and debit cards. It's our ID, our identification. It's our life. If we lose a purse or a wallet, we're at risk of losing more than just $20, $40, $60, but in losing a whole lot more. And this is an age-old thing. This isn't just unique to us in the 21st century. What's in your wallet has often been a sign of what you believe, what you think about yourself in the world, and who you are. We are coming in this year to the end of Matthew's Gospel. And as we get to the end of Matthew's Gospel, we find ourselves in Jerusalem with Jesus in the last days of his earthly ministry, before his crucifixion. We've got a lot of parables and words about judgment, and about the coming of God's wrath upon those who have rejected the coming of the Son. And we have fiery encounters between Jesus and his opponents. And today's battle is precisely over what's in the Pharisees and the Herodians' wallets, and who gets what's in them. Then the Pharisees went and plotted how to entangle Jesus in his talk. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians saying, teacher, teacher, we know that you are true and teach the way of God truthfully. And you do not care about anyone's opinion for you are not swayed by appearances. Tell us then what you think. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Now, the Pharisees were not fans of the Roman occupation. In their own kind of spiritual way, they wanted a free Israel, where the Jews once more ruled their own affairs, where they had both political and religious control over all things, where one could worship God in the temple as the scriptures prescribed, and where the king ruled according to the Old Testament covenant that God made with Moses at Sinai. On the other hand, the Herodians were kind of fans of Rome. At least they were more on Rome's side than the Pharisees were, to the extent that Rome gave them power. Now, they're called the Herodians because they are disciples of Herod's family. Now, you all know Herod the Great from those Christmas readings from the beginning of Matthew's Gospel. Herod was not a Jew by blood. He was nonetheless king over Israel by virtue of Rome's allowing him to rule over Israel. His family line was Idumean. They were converts to Judaism. And as you know, from the beginning of Matthew's gospel, Herod 
was not a particularly nice ruler. This is, after all, the king who ordered the assassination of every boy in Bethlehem under the age of two. And when even secular historians are asked why that event doesn't show up in secular histories of Herod's rule, they kind of shrug and say, Herod did so many bad things, it wouldn't be out of character. And honestly, we couldn't record everything that he did. His son, Herod Antipas, ruled Galilee after Herod the Great's death. This was the Herod who executed John the Baptist on the request of his niece, whose dancing he so much enjoyed. This is not a particularly nice family, but they get their power from Rome. So while these two groups couldn't agree about Rome, didn't agree on whether or not Rome should be allowed to continue to have some role in the, in the life of Israel or none at all, they did agree on one thing. They didn't like Jesus. And they didn't like the trouble that he was stirring up amongst the people. And so, as the old proverb goes, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. And they got together and they cooked up a scheme to either get Rome to turn on Jesus or get the crowds to do him in. Thus the question, is it good, right, and salutary to pay taxes to Rome, to Caesar, or not? Now, Jesus speaks out in favor of taxes to Rome, which would bolster the Herodian position. The crowds are going to turn on him. Crowds are not big fans of Rome. They want a Jewish state. They want Israel to be Israel's. But if Jesus speaks out against taxes to Rome, which is the position that some Pharisees might have held, then Rome is going to take him out. Either way, it's a win-win. Pharisees and the Herodians have clean hands, and the crowds or Rome will do their dirty work for them, and Jesus is no longer a problem. And so, Jesus understands the scheme, being the Son of God, and finds door number three, plan C, if you will. And he asks both the Pharisees and the Herodians disciples and the crowds who are overhearing this conversation, the capital one question, what's in your wallet? Jesus, aware of their malice said, why put me to the test, you hypocrites? Show me the coin for the tax. What's in your wallet? And they brought him a denarius which if you've been following all the parables we've been studying, you know is a day's wage. And Jesus said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. Then he said to them, therefore render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the thing that are God's. What's interesting is that he doesn't immediately, directly chastise them for having the coin in the temple at all. Although he could, because what have the disciples of the Pharisees and Herodians just done? They've pulled out a graven image on the temple grounds, an image to a false god, because Caesar was considered to be a son of the gods. And here they are carrying around an idol, a violation of the first commandment in the holy precincts of the Lord, the God of Israel. But he doesn't chastise them for that. He just kind of leaves it out there for them to think about whose image is on this coin. What he truly is chastising them for 
is for hanging on to it so tightly. For not knowing what you do with idols. You're holding one in your hand. What are you supposed to do according to the law of Moses? You throw the idols away. What are they good for anyway? What has Caesar been able to do for you lately? So the question for all of us this morning is, what are the idols in our wallets? What are the false gods that we carry around with us each and every day without even thinking about it, picking it up off our dresser, putting it in our pocket and walking out the door. And there we have it next to our thighs all day long or hanging from our shoulder all the live long day. It's worth noting that money occupied more than 50% of Jesus's teachings in the gospels, according to Billy Graham. I remember him saying that once and I went through the gospels and he's, he's pretty close. If it's not 50%, it's, it's awfully close. Money was the real idol in Jesus's time. Plus ça change, plus rien change. The more things change, the more things stay the same. It's still the real idol in our time. It is the thing that we trust above all things. We trust what's in our wallets, our credit cards, our debit cards, our healthcare cards, our driver's license, more than we trust the God that we claim to worship and revere. It was true in Jesus's time. It's true in our time. It was true 500 years ago. When Martin Luther set out to write the large catechism, his kind of expansion on the work that he set out in the small catechism. As he went through the commandments, he asked the good question, what is to have a God? What is God? Luther said, a God is that to which we look for all good and in which we find refuge in every time of need. To have a God is nothing else than to trust and believe in him with our whole heart. As I've often said, the trust and faith of the heart alone make both God and an idol. Then Luther goes on, says, very few there are who are cheerful, who do not fret and complain if they do not have money. This desire for wealth clings and cleaves to our nature all the way to the grave. So too, if anyone boasts of great learning, wisdom, power, prestige, family, and honor, and trusts in them, he also has a God, but not the one true God. Notice again how presumptuous, secure, and proud people become because of such possessions, and how despondent when they lack them or are deprived of them. Therefore, I repeat, says Luther, to have a God properly means to have something in which the heart trusts completely. I will be in two weeks at Mission Central, Mapleton, Iowa. It's quite the place if you've never been there. It's where not normal people live and work. Gary Teese, who is the founder of Mission Central, usually starts the day in his barn, which has been converted into a storehouse for all sorts of artifacts from around the world, from spears, from cannibal hunters in Papua New Guinea to uh, different clothes investments from Asia to artifacts from the middle of Africa or South America. There's all sorts of things around those walls. 
And part of the reason he takes people in there is because we still have, especially in the Midwest of the United States, and maybe even in the West of Canada, this idea that missionaries are people that go to these, these strange foreign cultures where they worship all these idols and false gods, and they've got these little home altars, right? People have a little altar in the corner to, to whatever gods or goddesses that culture worships. And we often prize ourselves on the fact that we are secular people, we're smart people. We don't, we don't have little home altars. We don't, but we do have things we carry around in our pockets or over our shoulders. That's where we keep our home altars these days. Do we cling to our possessions? And I'm not just asking you, I'm asking myself because we are all Westerners and all in the same boat. Do we cling to our possessions as tightly as those pagan people so-called clung to their idols and gods? Or do we cling to God more closely? Do we recognize that God is the one source of all of our good, that he has looked after us thus far and will surely continue to do so until the day that we are gathered back to him and even after that, until the day of resurrection. And if we do believe that, then why do we cling to these other things so closely? The Lord speaks to us through Isaiah. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now there's a sad conclusion to the gospel for today. I don't know if you've caught it but it is sort of depressing. When they heard it, they marveled and they left him and went away. These are the paths that are always set before us each and every morning, each and every day. To marvel at Jesus's words and walk away and continue to trust in the gods that are in our wallet and our RSPs and our GICs in our stock portfolios, in our homes, or not cling to those gods, let them go and see in Jesus the Lord who has delivered us from sin, death, and the devil through his crucifixion and through his resurrection. To see in Jesus the one who is the Lord who does all these things and will surely continue to look after us. To be amazed at the truthful things that come out of Jesus's mouth and walk away or to take to heart what he has said and cling to him only and above all else. That's the path set before us today, each and every day. In the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. If you'd like to learn more, visit intheway.org Thank you for listening, and God bless your week.